0: The path left the airstrip behind right away, leaning into curves like a yacht on a choppy sea. It carried the golf buggy through fields, sharp winds, and late afternoon. We passed a letterbox, encrusted with dried starfish, a general store with an axe leaning up against its doorframe, a cafe with a chalkboard, fish stew, and mashed potatoes. The ocean appeared now and then, grey and calm, like an obliging old dog that shows up to walk by your side for short spells, but then disappears to explore. We took a corner and across the field, two men sat on opposite sides of a gravel road. The men were on fold-out chairs. Each was pointing up. Each was pointing at an angle just above the midpoint of the road. The buggy turned another corner and the pointing men were gone. I looked sideways, but the tall man's hands were on the steering wheel, his eyes on the path ahead.
1: Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading, and aims to help readers discover their next favorite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi and welcome to the Good Reading podcast, Angus Dalton here with you. You just heard Jacqueline Moriarty reading from her new book, Gravity is the Thing. The book follows Abigail Sorensen, a Sydney cafe owner with a four-year-old son named Oscar. Since she was 15, Abigail has been receiving chapters of a kind of self-help book in the mail. And eventually, just before her 36th birthday, she is invited to an exclusive all-expenses-paid retreat in Tasmania that promises to finally uncover the truth behind the book. Jackie is generously hosting me in her home so we can chat about the book. Hi, Jackie. Thanks for having me.
0: Hello. Thank you so much for coming.
1: So you're primarily a children's writer. Feeling Sorry for Celia was one of the first ones in the year 2000, I think. Yes. And we've had the Colours of Madeline trilogy and most recently the slightly alarming tale of the Whispering Wars. But this new book, Gravity is the Thing, is your first adult book since I Have a Bed Made of Buttermilk Pancakes, which came out back in 2004. What about the story of gravity as a thing made you think that this was a book for adult readers?
0: I love writing for young adults and kids, but it's quite, it can be quite restricted because we're, we're thinking about young adult issues or children's and, or the, the world of children or the world of young adults. At the same time, I myself am living in a world of grown-up issues and ideas and relationships, so I want to write about them too. I loved writing buttermilk pancakes at the same time as, and I I wrote it for at the same time also as I wrote my next YA book, and I realized that I it's important to me to write for grown-ups at the same time as I'm writing for kids, and and for some reason they they work well, they uh, interact with each other in a way that my there's an imaginative outlet while I wrote and and an expression of my soul or whatever when i'm writing for the grown-ups and then i'm able to take that back into the children's world so it was always so this book i read after i'd finished i started this after i would finished buttermilk pancakes almost right after it Mm. which is a long time ago so i've been writing it for 10 or 15 years i think
1: going back to when you started it can you remember sort of like the kernel of an idea that kicked it off? Was there an image or something in particular you wanted to capture back then?
0: Well, I I think I'm a bit hopeless at life. That, you know, forgetting to do things in the grown-up world, like making dentist appointments, things that other people seem to have control over. I have often thought, hopefully other people are like this too, but I've often thought, why isn't somebody taking care of these things for me? (laughs) Like there should be some external committee and not just things like dental appointments and doctors and that sort of basic life but also relationships there needs to be an an external authority to say should you actually be with this person or break up with them because everyone has there's all this random ad hoc advice you get which but i thought i keep thinking i want some authority that has all the answers And in a way, that's what self-help, that's what you're looking for when you look at self-help. So I kept imagining, imagine if you had, I just imagine if you had some team working for you who would send you just updates, this is what you should be doing with your life. So, you know, when you get to 25 and think, why did I waste, I could have learned five languages by now. And if somebody had sent me in the mail a list of things then I might have been able to tick them off a list of tasks to complete. By this age, you should have done this, and this age, you should be starting to use moisturiser or whatever. (laughs) All these things that everyone gets in this really... Other people seem to just know. So that's the idea of the guidebook. So I just thought, imagine if someone started getting chapters from a guidebook in the mail when they're 16. I think there was that idea of a guidebook, and there was also a conversation i overheard on a train you're probably too young to when the celestine prophecy was a big thing do you yeah, know that book no it was uh, it was a long time ago so yeah um, the celestine prophecy was this huge book which there's uh, i think the one of the key i don't want to simplify it but one of the key messages in it was that in life there are coincidences And coincidences are meaningful and you need to take your messages. It's the universe sending you a message if there's a coincidence. And that if you see somebody, if you catch somebody's eye on a bus or a train or something like that, they probably have a message for you. There's some, these random interactions between us are where meaning comes from in life. And I was on a, I think it was a URL train from, is that what it's called, the URL? Yeah. Yeah, from London to Paris. And there was a young a young guy and a young girl who just happened to sit next to each other and they started talking and they'd both read the Celestine Prophecy and they were getting right into what message do you have to give to me and it was a uh, kind of and oh the coincidence what's the coincidences well wow, we're both going to Paris what a coincidence and um, we're both on the Eurostar oh, um, and they were sort of flirting but It was just this uh, listening to them made me think about these books and these movements that infiltrate our psyches and our communications and interactions and even to the extent of like triggering a flirtation or enabling a flirtation between this young, young couple. They seem to believe in it in that moment and people, everyone did believe in it and then they believe in the next thing. So I was just really interested in looking at looking at the history of, I mean, the history of self-help, self-help is much too big to cover, but just a selection of some of the big movements and how they have infiltrated our in relationships and in society and everything.
1: Yeah, because Abigail reads a book is it that book that you actually put in Gravity? is a thing, yeah. It, yeah. She reads that and it's so funny because she, you know, there's this hilarious scene where she goes into the cafe that she owns and she's asking her workers, what message do you have for me? And it's kind of tongue in cheek and I just thought that was hilarious. So it's so funny that people were doing that in real life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the, the strange thing is you, because I read all of it and I read a lot of things that didn't end up in the book because it would have been much too big, but it's this strange phenomenon where you read it and you can use your cynical um critical mind to think this is ridiculous and nonsense and if it just doesn't make sense it's not how the world works but at the same same time there's a kind of hopeful yearning part of your mind that completely believes it so definitely a part of me was believing or every time I read this book I would get this complicated thing where I was looking for coincidences or messages myself so I understood why because they're very they are successful these books or movements because they are very compelling and they have there is always some edge of the rational to them they most self-help does have something good in it I mean that's why it it there's a there's usually a, a a foundation of something sensible and it's it can just remind you of that and help you to live a better life so I never wanted to be completely uh I didn't want to mock self-help I just wanted to question it and ask why we are we can get so immersed in it and and I'm sure there are still people who and I don't want to make fun of people because there are still people who would probably believe in the power of coincidences so whatever helps you to get through yeah it's okay yeah definitely
1: I think I would describe myself as a self-help cynic Mm -hmm. but then again I've never you know read one of those books at a time in my life that it helped but I'm sure I'm sure it happens I'm sure many people's lives have you know been helped by those sort of books
0: well somebody I know I was talking to somebody who um I won't say who it was because he said don't tell anybody I said this (laughs) but I was talking to a group of people about my about this gravity book and about how the self-help industry and how people fall for it. And I was just laughing a bit about how that lives. And he took me aside afterwards and said, um, and this was an author, and he said, I read, I read, when I was 16, I read a self-help book that changed my life. And the reason I am a successful author now is because of that book. Wow. And, yeah, and he was, seemed, he, was he is a really practical, sensible, cynical, intelligent person who... You, you might have imagined laughing at self-help books, but he was sort of, so he was saying it as a secret. Actually, they can be effective. So, and I was trying to say to him, oh no, I didn't mean to mock it because of course that's true. I know there's people who are saved by some books, just like any any work of fiction. Some books yeah. can save you in ways that other people are unmoved by. And it doesn't matter if they're a bit nonsensical, that if this is where you're, what touches your heart, This is what will work for you. You know, you get little, I don't know if you're on social media, but you get little pieces, fragments of advice all the time and sometimes it will work for you. Just little pieces of advice like this and like this is how you fall asleep at night. You count as you breathe into this number and then you count while you hold and then you, so that worked for me when I read that. Then I thought, then I started using it and it's so basic things like breathing and and telling yourself that you are a wonderful person all that kind of stuff it's not going to necessarily solve of course it's not going to solve much deeper issues Mm. but all of it can help in its own way yeah yeah
1: it's funny that you mentioned the sort of fragmented way that you can receive that advice because that's sort of how abigail receives the guidebook from the eve of her 16th birthday, I think, that's when she receives the first chapter and then all the other chapters sort of come uh, non-chronologically. And the chapters have things like straightforward life advice, um, like, you know, don't stick a knife in the toaster. Others are stranger and, I guess, more maybe traditionally self-helpy. And there's others that ask the reader to complete certain tasks, like join a martial arts class, eat a slice of cinnamon toast, or really try to get inside the mind of a bush turkey. <laughs> <laughs> um, why does Abigail... Agree to keep receiving these chapters.
0: I think um, there's there's a group of people who are receiving the chapters, and they all agree to keep receiving them for different reasons. So Abigail is quite cynical about them too, and ignores a lot of it. But I think um, the other the other main um, plot point or theme in the book is um, missing persons. So Abigail's brother went missing. year that the same year that she started receiving the chapters from the guidebook and they were very close and that to her is so irrational and incomprehensible and these chapters of the guidebook are similarly mysterious and irrational and incomprehensible in a way because she doesn't know where they're coming from or why they're coming so these mysteries in her life seem to her they to be connected so she's going to keep receive it so she's allowed to say no stop sending them but she's going to keep getting them because she thinks maybe one day they will provide the answer so it's in the same way that self-help generally you you keep reading it because you think maybe the answer whatever I'm looking for what I'm yearning for will be in something if I if I just keep trying I'm going to find it so and it's not just books it's just you know you know if I try aura reading if I get my tarot read if I try exercise if I try um psychoanalysis, any of those things could eventually be the answer for me. And some of them might be. But for Abigail it's a very there's that general sense because she's deeply unhappy about her brother having disappeared. So she wants to find happiness or hope maybe in this in these chapters. And and then more concrete the more concrete issue of she doesn't know where her brother's gone. So that's the other thing that was a big motivation in um for writing the book was the issue of missing persons because I was writing the uh, colours of Madeline trilogy, which is a fantasy trilogy and quite a long time ago and the main character one of the two main characters is a sixteen year old boy whose father has disappeared. And that's just a convention of you know fantasy that's what happens his father's gone so he's going to have to go on a journey to find his father and that so so many fantasies start with that and when I was writing it preparing it planning it I just wanted to I I thought I don't want this to be just a convention I want to try to understand and get inside exactly what it feels like to have your father go missing so I read a lot about um missing persons and in the real world and to and that was so devastating and heartbreaking. And it, even though you ca- so I'd always thought before, it must be terrible having someone go missing. But reading the stories made it even clearer and more intense that trying to live with, I think they call it ambiguous loss, that where you have hope because they might come back and you have despair because they might never come back.
1: I was talking with an Australian novelist called Peggy Frew about this because her latest book is called Islands. And one of the characters in that has a a sibling that goes missing. Mm -hmm. And she said that having someone go missing in your life and having those unanswered questions affects your own identity. Would you agree with that?
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. Because everybody's looking for truth and trying to live in the in a reality, try to understand the reality that you live in so if the most important truth is one that you might never be able to find then half of you is missing in the sense that you you yourself are missing if someone that close to you is gone
1: so abigail she's had obviously this very sad traumatic thing happen but she also has a um a very wicked awesome sense of humor which is so fun to read uh she uh she studied English and law and lives on Sydney's lower north shore. Would you say she's a character quite closely aligned with you?
0: Oh, she's not. No, she didn't. Oh well, I don't know. <laughs> um I did study English and law and I yeah, live on the lower north shore. But she she felt very different from me when I she she was her own person quite quickly and I didn't have a brother go missing, and I don't get chapters of a guidebook in the mail. And, um, you just invent them. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't. It's not me, but there are aspects of. I know people will probably think it's me, and I also I was am a single mother with a little boy, so there's that aspect too. So, but I think you start, you have that kind of framework, and then you fill it in with a a character, who, and it can't be me, otherwise I couldn't write it. I think
1: Abigail, as a uh, as a younger person, you, you get these um, snippets of her life as a teenager uh, through these reflections that she's written for the mysterious authors of the guidebook, and um, you learn that she, as a younger person, is an aspiring horror movie screenwriter. Uh, were the stories that you started writing as a child just as gory? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I no, I yeah, I went through a phase of horror movie gory horror stories definitely but i also went through long phases of uh, i think all my stories were about fairies and princesses for a long time and and then trying to get into a darker yes definitely i really enjoyed it sort of uh, and that was working at school for a while i remember the teachers liked it where i where i had this dark twist at the end and so that's worse than I think for a while. And I, really, I can't stand horror movies now. I don't want to watch them at all. But I loved them when I was a teenager.
1: You grew up in Sydney. What did your childhood look like?
0: I was lucky because um, I was one of six kids. And, and then my mother started fostering babies. Um, and so there were always kids or babies around. And when um, we lived in Kellyville, on five acres and we had two dogs and 12 chickens and two horses and um, what else was there, a cat and so animals and kids and, and so I loved it. Uh, before that, when we were quite young, we, when I was younger, we lived in Waitara and um, opposite the railway tracks and there was lots of bush down the road, and a lot of neighborhood kids so it's that kind of I know a lot of grown-ups are always talking about how sad it is that kids today don't have that kind of childhood so I'm going to do that too but um that just yeah. coming home from school and then running outside to play and spending all weekend just roaming the neighborhood on bikes or going down to the bush and exploring the bush or climbing trees and that kind of thing that's what we had and then when we moved to Kellyville when I was 13 I think and that having always dreamed of having a horse, when we got to Kellyville, the previous owners had left behind their two horses because one was, was because one was really old and one was wild. So they didn't really want them. They said, would you like these horses? Um, and they'll cut the grass for you. And that, to me, was such a dream. <laughs> now I have just, I just I wanted to cry with joy. Um, the funny thing about it was though that so none of my brothers or sisters were all that interested. So they were my horses. It turned out that I was extremely allergic to horses. No, so allergic, so like you know, closing your like asthma, and my eyes would disappear. And the, but I still, for those few years. It, um, through high school i still looked after the horses and i just had to keep running back inside and putting my head under the shower to try and get my (laughs) breathe be able to breathe again and then go back out and i taught myself to like i read all the books on them and groomed the horses and washed them and got saddles and taught myself to ride even the wild one who was very scary used to rear up and all that Mm -hmm. kind of thing so but now I don't go near horses because I just what was I thinking? I really couldn't breathe when I was with them. But anyway.
1: Yeah, that is dedication to push <laughs> through the anaphylaxis. Um, so two of your siblings, Nicola and Leanne Moriarty, are also extremely successful published novelists. Um, should publishers be rushing to pay a mad scientist to try and isolate the Moriarty novel writing gene? <laughs> uh, why do you think the three of you have ended up doing what you do so well?
0: I think there's – we keep trying to figure out answers to that because people ask us and so we think we need to have an answer for it. But there are six kids and three of them are not interested in writing at all. So two sisters who are so tired of people saying to them, when are you going to write a book? (laughs) They have no interest at all in writing books and my brother. And they – so it's like a 50/50 thing. But I think a lot of families if there's enough kids then and they have similar interests they're going to grow up so like the Hemsworth brothers mm. and they're all actors and the Bronte we like it when people call us the Brontes we <laughs> like that comparison. So there are families like that. I don't know if it's my dad used to our dad used to commission us to write stories and we talk about that a bit but Nicola is the youngest one and he didn't commission her to write stories they just the youngest ones he got tired of um <laughs> just gave them pocket money and Nicola wasn't all that interested I think when she was little so it's not so people say oh, it must be because he dad commissioned you to write stories but Nicola started writing without having that it helped I it was great I loved being commissioned to write stories and it really helped me and maybe Leon to see that the possibility that you can make this um, pleasurable hobby into something that can make money one day like treat it as a profession so I'd write my crazy long stories that didn't end about fairies and princesses and things but when dad commissioned me to write a story I had to give it a structure and make it end and illustrate it and m- So complete something. So that's really good to be able to complete something. And when Leanne and um, I were young, we didn't have a TV. So we did a lot of reading and playing and imaginative games and things like that. So maybe that helped. But Nicola had a TV when she was little. So it's not the answer. So I don't know what the answer is.
1: still a Moriarty mystery, if anything else. (laughs) Oh,
0: that's good. Yeah. I like that idea.
1: I was thinking Leanne's latest book is about a wellness retreat and <laughs> yours is sort of similar, at least at the start as well. And I thought you might have had a stimulating conversation together about wellness retreats and then gone away and started writing books about it. But of course that doesn't work given that you started the idea for this book so long ago. So oh, long ago. Thank so... you for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, you were there first. <laughs> I did it
0: first and I couldn't believe it when she... Um, yeah, because when... Well, she'd been talking for a long time about... Um, about writing a book set on a, a tropical island in a hotel with a group of people or going there. So she'd been saying that for a while and mainly it was sort of a joke I think because she was saying I want to go to like use that for research I have to go to an island resort and then her um, and that became over time in her mind she thought I oh, not I make it a wellness resort and not a tropical island. So that idea developed and in a way it makes sense too because we do talk about we have similar Nicola and Liana I I'm close to all my sisters and Nicola and Liana and I maybe have similar minds in a way that and so we talk about lots of things so we probably have talked about the self-help industry before but I do remember being pretty mad at her at um at dinner where she's mentioned that she had decided she's going to make it a wellness resort instead of uh, just a normal resort and realizing, wait a minute, your book is going to come out about a self-help retreat is going to come out before mine. And I have worked in the, for the last 15 years. So she found it funny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Did it anyway.
0: <laughs> Did it anyway.
1: But they are very different books. And with Gravity is the Thing, it begins with this image of two men sitting opposite each other on either side of a gravel road pointing up at the sky, and uh, we heard you talk about that image when you were reading from the book before as well. Um, without maybe giving too much away, how did this image come to you and what's its significance on the overall story?
0: So I did work as a lawyer for a few years in defamation law and media law, and and I did a PhD on media law and read a lot of defamation cases. I love the old historic cases, and there's a case where... Um, and I love talking about the law more than people love hearing about it. So I better be careful not to keep going. I, I always think this is so fascinating. Everybody must want to hear this. But when I write about too much legal stuff in the books, the editors are always suggesting maybe cut back on this bit a little bit. <laughs> so I don't have a clear mind about that. But I'll just tell you re- very briefly this case is from, I think it was the 1850s. I can't remember exactly when, but the 19th century anyway. And um, there was a a boilers makers business was set up and a man who lived nearby complained about it. I might be getting these facts wrong, but it's something like that. The man nearby complained about it and it got closed down. And so the boiler makers went out of business. And then people were very angry about that and wanted to, and were very angry about the man who had closed down the boiler makers business. So there was a fair on in the town, in the village, and somebody set up a big banner that said, something about this man ruined these people's, gave his name and said he ruined these people's business and he's a cad or whatever. And they put up a banner and a man sat in a chair by the side of the road and pointed up at the sign. So everyone he walked past would see this man sitting in the chair pointing up at the sign. And so the issue for the case was if you are who, nobody knew who actually put the banner up. They couldn't prove who had put it there the fact that a man sat in a chair pointing to it, if you point out um, something defamatory, are you publishing the defa- defamation? So you look interested. I'm very Good. interested. Good. That's Thank fascinating. Yeah. So I find it really interesting. <laughs>
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> so I loved that case and I always loved the, and then it became relevant, that case became relevant for things like defamation online. So if you include a link to, something defamatory so it's almost you know you're pointing it out if you have a link to it are you publishing it or are you just pointing to something that somebody else put there so they're pointing things out whether you are responsible for that so that was fascinating to me but um Just that image of a man sitting by the side of the road pointing up stayed in my mind for a long time.
1: Yeah, that's lovely. Uh, You need to have words with those editors that are cutting out the legal stuff because that's an awesome (laughs) story. Thank you. (laughs) Jackie, they say you can tell a lot about a person based on their answer to the following question. If you could take the power to go invisible or take the power to fly, <laughs> which one would you take?
0: <laughs> I'm not very good at what people, when people say, make this snap decision and it <laughs> tells a lot about you. Then I go into a panic because I'm very indecisive and then it's too much meaning and I take it too literally and want to get all the... But I'm um, flying, definitely. That's easy, yeah. So I didn't even need that precursor, uh, yeah. Actually, I talking to my 12-year-old about that not long ago. And he was saying, because that question, he was saying, why would you want to be invisible when you could fly? It's so easy. Which one would you prefer?
1: Um, I used to say invisible.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: But uh, I think... The, uh, the, when I answered that, I was in like this really insecure... I think it was in high school, and I had that oh, feeling of wanting to hide all the oh, time. No, but then I think as you become more confident and happy, maybe you want to fly. So yeah. now I say flying. Oh, no. Nice. So I think it's an interesting question.
0: That is a great one. That's yeah. a good... Yeah. And I think also, maybe being invisible... I can imagine when I was younger, wanting to be invisible too, and find out. Maybe it's something to do with also not understanding the world. You want to hide and hear what's happening. And then as you get older, you think, no, I don't want to hear people talking about me. You could hear, you could be eavesdropping on people talking about you. I don't want to do that. I don't Google myself. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. No, be there. Be present. Be proud.
1: Jackie, thank you so much for having me and for um, chatting to me about this beautiful, fantastic book. It's been absolutely awesome to hear you talk.
0: It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming by.
1: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Good Reading Podcast. Gravity is the Thing by Jacqueline Moriarty is out now from Pan Macmillan. You can find it in all good bookshops, including Good Reading's online bookshop at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. You will hear more author interviews coming from us very soon, but until then, happy reading.